What's up everyone, Lisa Fields here, and I'm so excited about our new curriculum, Courageous Conversations. You heard about our popular conference, Courageous Conversations, where we invite the leading pastors, thought leaders, and scholars from conservative and progressive backgrounds for conversations. But we not only want to have those conversations on stage at the conference, but we want you to have them in your everyday life. So we developed a curriculum for you to do just that. Courageous Conversations curriculum, the tools you need for the conversations and culture. You can get that today on Amazon or on our website at jude3project.org. Hello, welcome to the Jude 3 Project podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Fields. I'm the founder of the Jude 3 Project. Well, thank you for watching another episode of the Jew 3 Project podcast. As always, I'm your host, Lisa Fields, the founder of the Jew 3 Project. And today I'm joined by Dr. Eric Redman. Welcome, Dr. Redman. Thank you, Lisa, for having me on the podcast. Glad to be here with you today. Uh, thank you for joining us. And we're kind of in a series uh, on why we should trust the Bible. Uh, you just heard last week from uh, Sherelle Ducksworth, soon to be Dr. Sherelle Ducksworth on kind of an overview of why we should trust the Bible. But we want to get into the different um, the different testaments. So we're gonna start with the Old Testament with Dr. Redmond and then we'll have the New Testament coming up in the next week, if it be the Lord's will. But uh, before we get into that, uh, Dr. Redmond, just tell our audience a little bit about yourself. So I am a professor at Moody Bible Institute in the Bible department. I love teaching the Bible and helping people understand how to read the scriptures. I'm also on staff at Calvary Memorial Church in Oak Park, Illinois, where I'm associate pastor of preaching and teaching. So my role there primarily is the pulpit and the cl classroom, but I also have pastoral care uh, duties. My wife and I have been married 31 years and we have five adult children. We live outside of the Chicago area and uh, we love serving young adults and uh, really enjoy helping people see how Christ forms us in all parts of scripture. Mm -hmm. No, that's amazing. Um, excited to have you on today uh, to talk about this subject. Um, let's just dive right in. What do you think the biggest challenges to people trusting the reliability of the Old Testament? I think the greatest challenges are, there are twofold. One is in academics and one is in, in popular culture. And I would mm -hmm. talk to them in reverse. In popular culture, we often hear people say, well, you can't trust the scriptures. They're just a bunch of of myth. Nobody can believe those stories. And especially in the contemporary world where many of the stories involve things that would cause our gag reflex or yuck factor to go off like uh, genocide and uh, rape and polygamy and other things that are in the Old Testament that almost seem like they have approval or are ignored. Many say, I can't trust a book like uh, that. Uh, often, mm -hmm. however, what I find is that when people say that, I say, have you read through the Old Testament? Because I think it's a different experience for someone to read through the Old Testament other rather than accept someone's word that, oh, that book is, is false. The other mm -hmm. issue academically is that since the 18th century, there's been what we call a scientific challenge to the, the scriptures. That's where we try to apply the concepts of scientific investigation to the scriptures, to the Old uh, Testament, and say, you know, we can't trust the miraculous, and much of this is the miraculous. If we can't mm -hmm. explain things through naturalism, then we can't trust this. So there's no way there was a Red Sea crossing. There's no way there was manna dropping down from heaven. There were no way, there's no way an axe head floated. There's no way these prophecies could have happened. So in popular culture, you have where people are saying, well, what we've heard basically is that we can't trust it. And there's some ugly things in there we're not sure what to do with. But in the mm -hmm. academic culture, we're saying we're making a standard that the Bible was never supposed to meet. We want it to meet scientific verification. And that's not its intention. Mm -hmm. 
No, no, that's helpful in our framing of it. Um, can you talk a little bit about the canonization of the Old Testament? So uh, can you speak to that a little bit? I'll speak to it a little bit. When we see, when we're reading in the New Testament and we're reading about Jewish culture in the first century, because the New Testament is one of our historical documents to help us see how to understand Jewish culture and Jewish belief in the first century. It is reflective of what was going on in the first century. Mm -hmm. What we see as we look at the Jewish writers of the New Testament and the Jewish Messiah, as we understand it, Jesus, we see that they understood that there was a fixed canon of scripture. They will constantly refer to the law, referring to the law of Moses, which is a way of speaking of the first five books of the Bible. And they will refer to the prophets, which for the ancient Hebrews was a way of speaking of the books from Joshua right after Deuteronomy, right after the first five books, until the final book in the Old Testament, Malachi or Second Chronicles, depending upon how you arrange the Old Testament. They had the former prophets, the earlier writing prophets, and the latter prophets, and that included all of the rest of the books of the Old Testament, when you see them referring to the prophets. Sometimes they referred to the Old Testament in three divisions. They were referred to it as law, psalms, and prophets. But we know it was fixed there. So the question is, how did it become fixed? So the law, when we're reading in Scripture, we see places where Moses is said to have been writing the events that took place in the early history of the Old Testament and the conversations and dialogues that took place. Now, we know it's selective because we don't have all the conversations that he had in his bedroom or all the conversations that all the Israelites had as they were, were traveling. But we do have record of this is the book of Moses, or we saw Moses write this down, or we see Joshua writing, or people doing things according to the book of the law of Moses. It was recognized. So we see Moses putting together the books of scripture as an eyewitness, the first five books in the Hebrew Bible. The book of Genesis, of course, would have had to have been passed to him by stories, which we know the ancient world did all the time, the stories of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then the earliest accounts would have had to come by divine revelation as we understand understand it because no one was around for the creation for the creation of adam um, and eve and cultures were lost during the flood so we don't have a problem with that mm -hmm. the rest of the way through the old testament you see record of people recording the scriptures for example in the psalms we have references to david writing the psalms and then in the historical books of scripture. We have reference to David being a writer of Psalms. Same with Proverbs. We attest them to Solomon, and we have record of him being a proverb writer. And we have many things like this. For the prophets, we have the word of the Lord came to so-and-so prophet, and mm -hmm. then the prophet write, writes that down. And so the Israelites collected these things as the very words of God speaking. And you can, mm -hmm. can see that they reference um, Jeremiah in the book of Daniel. So in the book of Daniel, when they say the prophecy of Jeremiah is fulfilled, that means they've collected Jeremiah the prophet and held on to it as something that they considered the word of God. When they make earlier references to Isaiah or to Deuteronomy or this happened in Joshua's day or reading about Elijah when Malachi says Elijah the prophet, he's making a reference to first and second Kings. So they're holding on to a collection of stories here. We know they held those collections, those Psalms, those prophets, that legal writing through the time of the first century because they make reference to it as the law and the prophets, or the law of the prophets, and the, the Psalms. The 
Hebrew people received it as the word of God. And mm -hmm. so when it came to the church, believers, the earliest being Jewish, they were following the law and the prophets before they had in their hands any record of the story of Jesus or any writings from the apostles to tell them how to live in light of the cross and the resurrection of Jesus. So the church received what the Jews had already seen at their Old Testament canon and said, that is the very word of God. It is what we receive as coming from God. Mm -hmm. No, that's, that's extremely, extremely helpful. When you engage with people, well, I want to ask you this question because uh, some people struggle with the, this is more in the scholarly world about the document documentary hypothesis. Am I saying it right? You are. Documentary. Okay. Um, can it, can you tell our audience what that is and how do we navigate that uh, as, as believers in the authority and inerrancy of scripture? So the documentary hypothesis, sometimes known as uh, the Wellhausen theory, named after a scholar who was an early promoter of the theory of Wellhausen is what we call source criticism. It is a question of the sources used to construct the material that we have in the first five books of scripture. And what this theory did, it said there were four types of documents used to construct Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And the four document types go by the letters uh, J, E, D, P, trying to transliterate from the Hebrew letters. Like J represents the letter for Yahweh, because we think if you spell Yahweh, or we used to think that the Yah would translate as a J. And so we say there are J documents or Yahweh documents, which we're saying there are a certain number of documents that seem to be heavy in the use of Yahweh as the Lord's name in the first five books of scripture, or actually really the first four they're referring to with Yahweh. But they're saying in other places in the Pentateuch, you don't see God identified by that name. You see him identified by other names, El, Elohim, Eloah, uh, attachments to those names, etc. So the theory says the heavy use of this name in certain documents must bend by have been by one writer different from writers who used another name. So then we move to the, the E. E stands for Eloist. And Eloist is saying there are other documents that comprise the Pentateuch that use the name El or Elohim, which looks like plural in, in the Hebrew, but it's what we call a plural of majesty when referring to divine names. It's can speak of two or one, but we're saying it's speaking to the one God. The Elohim says that, well, look, this portion of the Pentateuch uses the name for God, Elohim, much more than it uses Yahweh, and it seems to refer to God by another name. That must be a different writer who mm -hmm. wrote that there. And so they're saying this is a different set of sources used to construct the Pentateuch. Then we come to the P, the, which stands for priestly, or referring to the priestly part, where there are many codes and standards given in, in the law to tell the Israelites how to relate to the Lord ceremonially, or how to follow the law, or an emphasis on the institution of the priesthood and sacrifices and offerings and, and the Levites. And they say, hmm, this section here must be written by another writer or they're a set of writers and they collected the documents that would be priestly to help compose the priestly sections of the 
the Pentateuch. And then there's what we call the Deuteronomist, or particularly the book of Deuteronomy, and saying, you know, the book of Deuteronomy is just a totally different piece of literature than Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. That's a different writer altogether. And each of these writers wrote in different centuries. There, We would say, or I would say, and those that would share the theory of the writing of the Pentateuch, that I would say the inerrantists. Uh, position that this is the voice of God, we would say the Pentateuch was written in the 15th century BC. It was completed by 1406, 40 years after the Exodus. But the Pentateuch documentary hypothesis series says, no, 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 no. The writing of the Pentateuch is much later than, than that. In fact, Deuteronomy is probably not written until the 7th century BC, and the priestly set of documents is probably written in the 9th century uh BC, rather than one person writing, thus saith the Lord, and recording God's interaction with his people. The source criticism, JEDP theory, or JEPD, excuse me, theory, says that the Pentateuch is a human document only, and it does not show divine witness. It shows interpretation of possible divine action with people, but it is not the very words of God itself. So the Pentateuch theory removes all divine authority in the Old uh, uh, Testament. Now, you didn't ask me this, but I'll add. There has been so much scholarship to debunk J-E-D-P, even among those who don't hold to inerrancy, but say the theory itself just does not hold uh, together and there, I can give many resources on, on, on this. But the assumption is that one person could not have changed names or written about the history of Israel and include the priesthood and the changes in the name, um, and also recorded what happened in Deuteronomy as the experience of the second generation interacting with God after the failures in the wilderness for 40 years. And there's no reason to put those assumptions up, up front and automatically negate the possibility of one writer. Moreover, we see consistent ideas throughout the Pentateuch that it will appear that one writer would have written. And the ancient Jewish people never considered the Pentateuch to be written or a document of anything but one author, that author being Moses. It's only when we get to the 18th century do people try to cut and paste the Pentateuch and put it back together. Mm -hmm. No, that's that's helpful because what I wanted to highlight through that is that early African church fathers wouldn't have had that same uh, understanding of the Old Testament. And why that is important is because there's this claim that, you know, to trust the Old Testament is more of a white, um, a white construct, um, a more liberative view of the Old Testament would be to take, you know, source criticism and things of that nature. But those actually were constructed by white men, those theories. A am I right? That would be one of the, the, the crit criticisms. However, it would be so interesting to think that the Europeans put so much blackening in the Old Old Testament when we see the number of people that come from places that are in uh, Africa, the presence of the Nubians, the many references uh, to Cush and Egypt, and not just Egypt as an enemy of Egypt, but Egypt as a great power, or Egypt as a nation that one day is going to have envoys that raise their hands to God, like Psalm 68 uh, uh, says. And see people traveling along with the Israelites who have African descent and actually speak quite well of Africa. That would be really interesting to think that a bunch of slanted Europeans, people against African exaltation, would have put something like that um, up in there. So no, what scholarship should uh, uh, say, in fact, is it is even more supportive of uh, the dignity of all people, including people of African descent, to see that God, in speaking, spoke well of people of African 
origin and um, descent. Rather than saying people came together and and pieced this together and, oh, well, some things happen to be in there about the African uh, origins. They want to negate especially the problem of Egypt appearing to be an oppress, oppressor. But that's unnecessary to do if we accept the documents as they are, as coming from the voice of God, revealing the history of what actually happened in those time periods. Mm-hmm. No, that's that's extremely, extremely helpful. And I think that distinction of like pointing to uh, the African or the black presence in the Old Testament if it is there, why would, if it was some tool of manipulation, why would they leave that in there? Uh, is what, what you're getting to. Um, am I right? Exactly. Exactly what I am getting to. Yeah. And I, I want to explore that a little further when we talk about the later criticisms of the Bible, that these were levied from Europeans, uh, Germans, um, and other Europeans in particular, because I do think uh, that's important to highlight. Because if the claim is that to to believe in the trustworthiness or the inerrancy of Scripture is more of a white supremacist framework, we can also think about who constructed the deep criticisms from the for the Bible. Those were. Uh, more white uh, from a white liberal framework. Am I correct in saying that? That would be very correct. Yes, I would be glad for us to explore that as we continue on. Yeah, I want you to talk a little bit about that. Okay, so so I mentioned that the criticism of the Pentateuch really began in the 18th century where we took the a scientific method approach, because scientific method was huge in the 18th century, the scientific method approach to the scripture and as scripture to meet a standard it was not intended to meet. Scripture does not claim to be a scientific document. It's always claimed to be a divine document, and that's how it was understood in um, the the church for the most part, dating back, like you said, to the to the African fathers who would have been part of the early church. And even as I have said, for the ancient Hebrews, their document was received into uh, the church. So the earliest critics in the 18th century uh, largely were German. And Germans, so we're talking about uh, a people who we later think of as uh, this is where Aryan supremacist origins uh, were. It is actually the Germans who criticize the scriptures and say, we can't find that to be a, a divine document. Now, now part of that is the Hebrew scriptures, because they would be totally against that and the Jewishness and thinking of a divine origin and the Hebrews as the people of of God. So we've got to under, under, undercut the only history that tells us about that, and that would be the Hebrew Bible, Bible what we call the Old te- te- Testament. Yeah. So they want to slice and dice and, and divide and get rid of the ability to say God has chosen the Hebrew people and God has spoken in history. When you remove that Man has all authority because there's no authority um, above above him. So for those who now would would say that, well, the the Old Testament allows for uh, white supremacy in the way that it was made. One, they're not understanding the origin of who made the criticisms originally of of the the Pentateuch, but also they're making a matter of uh, interpretation. Our forefathers in the African-American community understood this. This is why when slave masters, early American form of white supremacy, tried to use the scriptures to oppress African-Americans, they read through Exodus story and other places and said, those guys are reading that incorrectly. And that certainly is not the intent of the scripture. The intent of the scripture is to provide 
freedom and and liberty and to support the dignity and the uplifting and to look for justice in here, many references to justice and the care of the poor, um, et cetera. So it was not a document that was intended to support white supremacy. It's just that some people took their selective places and utilize it as a tool uh, for white supremacy. The same way that people can misread a first or second amendment for the for the Constitution of the United States and have a wrong idea about what freedom of speech means or use it to have a wrong idea of what it means that we have the right to bear arms. You can easily take the very words and try to make them say what you want to say and make the theory that is against the intention that is going on. The same thing with the scriptures. The later, the earlier and later white supremacists are using an interpretation to say this is what the scriptures were for, where the scriptures themselves never give witness to such a thing. Yeah. So that's that's really interesting that when we see, like, take, for instance, the slave Bible, which a more, I guess, conservative white supremacists. So I want to I want to delineate between <laughs> white supremacy and understanding there could be progressive forms of white supremacy and conservative forms of white supremacy. So okay. a conservative form of white supremacy would take certain passages out that are liberative and construct a slave Bible. So that's the more conservative uh, white supremacist. What you're articulating is the more liberal white supremacists say, let's take the divine nature out of scripture so that the the Jewish history will be stripped from it. Is, am I correct? Uh, if we take that out, the, the presence of Jewish history will not have the potency because it's not connected to the divine, which would undercut th- what they wanted to do in their communities during that time. And is that I- a correct articulation? I love your analogy here. This is like talking about the liberal white races versus the conservative white races in modern culture here, mm-hmm. whereas there are, you know, liberals of European descent who think they're not racist because they're very progressive in here and they struggle with a lot of the same supremacist or whiteness ideas that the conservatives do. They're just their application of it just is is not as cruel. Mm-hmm. So I would say, yes, your analogy is very good. Um, there that we are looking at people who want to make a slave Bible and have complete oppression because of people of African descent. We want to keep them enslaved versus those who just want to take away the authority of scripture altogether so that man can be at the pinnacle of society and have no accountability to, to anything above, no future judgment coming, uh, completely autonomous to do as humankind feels. Yes. And I think that's a really helpful distinction for people who are suffering with the authority of scripture, because sometimes if we, I said this in the episode I did with Sherelle, but trauma, bitterness, and resentment don't allow us to see truth clearly. And oftentimes in our frustration with our church experience, we move to deconstruction. When we move to deconstruction, if we haven't let the Lord process our hurts, we will just trade one supremacist view of scripture for another Mm. because we haven't been thinking through how our heart has not been healed from the traumatic experiences that we've had. And those, those traumas hinder our ability to see truth clearly. I always say uh, when bitterness takes root in your heart, truth gets distorted in your mind. And so what I Mm. want our audience to think through is that, you know, in your maybe deconstruction process and you're thinking about throwing away the Bible, I always say to young people, if you're going to throw away the Bible, if they only wanted you to read certain passages to begin with and they never wanted you to read the whole text, you're actually doing what white supremacists wanted you to do on the conservative side. But similarly, if you throw away the text and strip the divine nature from it, you're also doing what white supremacists on the liberal side wanted you to do a healed version when we look at the text gets to see the messiness of scripture but and sees the complexities of it but is able to see that Christ is at the center of it all 
And I, I just want to communicate that because I think that's important because I see so many people trading one thing for another and it still doesn't lead to the liberation and transformation and the salvation that they're looking for. I think that you landed on an important point about our hearts and our past and trauma and bitterness and pain and its role in shaping how we approach and trust the documents we see in scripture, because we are saying my experience with Christians, my experience with the church is determinant of how I am reading the scriptures, which does put a lot on on we who are stewards of the word of God and of mm-hmm. the Christ, Christian life. But it is uh, a saying my pain can get in in the way. There's no way I'm going to accept a story of a, a David and Bathsheba because of the pain that I have with related related issues. Just that sort of thing clouds our reading. But as 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 you've noted, what we're really doing is we're substitute sub, substituting in here a philosophy like the white supremacists use, where what we need to do is receive scripture as a document that's trustworthy and figure out one, how do we address our issues of pain? And two, what are we supposed to get from the analogous painful passages of scripture that make me say, I'm not certain about this book. It hasn't transformed the lives of people I dealt with in the past. Mm -hmm. No, that's, that's extremely, I think extremely helpful and vital for us to, to note, I want to ask you, what other things, challenges for the Old Testament have you seen that people wrestle with around the reliability that you would like to speak to um, in this present moment? People wrestle with the reliability of the Exodus crossing. How in the world did people walk across on the Red Sea on dry land? Is it even the Red Sea? Because the Hebrew looks more like the Red Sea and the Red Sea is on, is is not that deep, whereas the Red Sea would be very deep. So they try to explain that away. How could there have been more than two million Israelites in Egypt and they didn't take over the Egyptians? Or could Egypt even have sustained the, the millions of people that we say came out of the Exodus because scripture says there were 603,000 fighting men that came came out and there were 603,000 men alone. You had women and children and you have at least 2 million people. How could you say saying 2 million people in the desert here? Well, the scripture says there was a divine way of sustaining them. God provided for them in the desert so they had all the food they needed. God blew open the Red, Red Sea and kept it open all uh, night. God is the one who raised up Moses so that the two million people eventually could leave because God defeated the Egyptians, not the people um, in there. But the people struggle with those issues. They struggle with Daniel. Daniel's a big one because Daniel predicts the coming of nations after Babylon, he predicts the coming of the Medes and the Persians. He predicts the coming of the Greeks. He predicts the coming of the Romans after that and predicts it with great accuracy centuries before, before it happens. He even identifies that, uh, that Alexander the Great, his kingdom will be broken under into his four, four generals without naming the four, four generals. And people say, how in the world could he have been that accurate? No, no, no. He had to have written after the events when the nature of prophecy of a God who is all knowing allows a Daniel to be predictive about things that are coming with accuracy, with accuracy. So, so people have problems with that. Uh, Other problems have to do with the content. Again, as I say, that would make us say with our modern sensibilities, there's no way that that should be in scripture like God commanding the Israelites to go into the promised land and wipe out entire nations. We say that, oh my goodness, that looks like genocide, whereas we don't actually have genocide in uh, the Old Testament. God is not saying wipe out these people because of their 
ethnicities and there's an ethnic war going on between multiple groups of people. The instructions that we see in the Old Testament uh, have to do with God saying, you know, people are wicked before me. These nations are wicked before me. Effectively, you're going to be my instrument of judgment among the, these people. But God also holds Israel accountable for the sins they do, and he judges Israel just as much as he judges nations in the promised land. He, he dropped bodies all over the wilderness for 40 years before they ever got into the promised land. And so this is not a matter of genocide, but we're taking our sensibilities and trying to place them upon things that we see in the Old Testament. And so this would cause some of the struggles that people have with saying, I can trust a book like the Hebrew Scriptures. No, that's super helpful. Uh, when we think of like, um, I, the numbers escape me, but when we think about uh, one book saying another number and another book saying another number as it relates to armies and sizes, how do we reconcile that or the trustworthiness of the, of the scripture? I know I'm not giving you a specific number, but I, I'm sure you, you, you understand what I'm communicating. I do understand what you are communicating with apologists. So let's, let's use something else. Let's use the, the dating of the king since we're talking about numbers. Whereas one account will say, such and such king in his third year did this act. And then we'll go to one of the other historical books that gives the same account and says, in the fourth year, so-and-so did this same action. And we say, wait a minute, Years aren't correct in there. They got those things wrong. We're needing some more understanding of how the ancient Near East and its literature worked and how they made record of things. For the example I'm giving, this is something called an ascension a year. So let's use an analogy. You know, in, um, in South Korea, right? No, in North Korea, South Korea, uh, one of, I think it was South Korea, they just decided that in 2023, they're going to account birthdays the same way the rest of the world accounts. A lot of people in South Korea have three birthdays. Uh, they have the the day they were, were born, um, a year after that, which is what they count as the time, you know, your, your birthday. Um, and they have another... Uh, means of accounting for what they call your date of birth in South Korea. And it has to do with their their customs and their practices. But now they have said, hey, we're going to drop all that and we're going to account for your birthday being the day that you were born, uh, not one year later. So a lot of South Koreans actually in their ages, their ages lowered because their ages were starting after they were one years old rather than the day they were born or in the honorary way, according to, to custom. But if you read later and you read, you know, so-and-so was such and such age, and then they say, oh, no, no, this person was actually this age. You would say, how do we get that? You would have to understand how they were counting for birthdays in South Korea. Well, an ascension year did effectively the same thing. Uh, some accounting in the ancient Near East said, we're going to start counting the date of this king's reign, the day he begins to reign. But there was another accounting system that said, we start the date of this king's reign one year after the, the reign. And so for some, they would have, this king began to reign in 1613 BC. And others would have, this king began to reign in 1614 BC. But you had to know which system was being used because they're actually giving the same date of the king, but using a different system. And people come in and see those those days and they say, see, contradiction. No, not contradiction. Two different ways of doing dating based on where the writer was geographically. The same thing can happen with mixture of, of, of other numbers. Or since we know that some numbers were rounded and other numbers were exact because they counted the very persons in the tribe, we have to say, is this a exact counting number or was this a this number came as a rounded number here? And so it's close to the number here, but it's not exact because this rounded number wasn't intending to be um, exact. And things like that, 
that happened. Whereas we only want to talk and throw up two numbers and say, oh my goodness, could not possibly be the same thing. But let's go into the details behind how things happen in an ancient Near East and see, is there a legitimate, factual, verifiable way of accounting for these differences? And what we see on all of these contradictions is there's always one. Yeah, that's that's helpful. Um, could you recommend before we get into anything deeper, uh, a resource for somebody who's wrestling with these Bible difficulties slash uh, um, seeming contradictions? I think of Gleason Archer's work uh, on Bible difficulties. I don't know if it's called Bible difficulties, but I, is that uh, is it called Bible difficulties? I don't uh, know. Gleason. But- I, I know which works your Archer's yeah. work. Uh, his survey of the Old Testament, which is a much older survey of the Old Testament, addresses many of these co- concerns. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I would recommend K.A. Kitchen's Reliability of the Old Testament. I would recommend Dwayne Garrett's book, I think it's called Rethinking Genesis, which really goes after the documentary hypothesis and puts it to rest, I would recommend Walter J. Kaiser Jr., Walter C. Kaiser Jr., excuse me. Um, the Old Testament documents, are they reliable? Are they relevant? They'll, those three right there would get anyone started. And then a good commentary on uh, the Pentateuch or history of the Pentateuch, like uh, Dr. Eugene Merrill has two books on the history of the Old Testament. I think one of them just called Old Testament um, history. I would get Gordon Wenham's two-volume commentary on Genesis. I would get Bruce Walkie's commentary on uh, Genesis. I would get the Exodus commentary in the Expository Expositor's Bible commentary series, and right now the author's name uh, escaped me on who um, wrote that. I would get Christopher Wright's commentary on the Exodus. And usually if you get a good commentary on Genesis or uh, Exodus, it will address the concerns of JEDP, uh, JEPD, excuse me, uh, uh, theory. And some of the other ones can be addressed by relevant commentaries uh, addressing those areas. Again, Eugene Merrill has one on Deuteronomy. Um, I am trying to think of one on Daniel. And of course, there's always um, Alice's book um, on the reliability of the Pentateuch. Um, um, God spake through Moses. Is that O.T. Alice's book? I, I can't call the call the title right right mm-hmm. now, but there are many more. Uh, resources. And if you're going to post them on your website, I could send some to for the listeners. No, thank you. That's that's super helpful. What what I want to say, I I hear some of these, some of the people that are listening say, well, most of the names he named were white. Uh, If you go to uh, on the (laughs) other side of the argument, those who pull from a more progressive view uh, or a, a view that would have some criticisms of the authority of scripture they're going their their sources are going to be white too so i just want to i want to i want to make that claim because you're going to be like oh this is a white and then you're going to go over there and you know one of one of the things i remember one of the uh when i first got introduced to new new testament uh criticism our textbook in uh undergrad was bart ehrman intro to new testament and that threw me for a loop because I didn't know who Bart Ehrman was. I had never heard these criticisms. I'm just a a PK that grew up in church, believed the Bible, just took it. Sunday school was everything they taught me was right. Never questioned it. When I first got exposed to Bart Ehrman, it blew my mind. I was so confused. I didn't know what was going on. Uh, he really sought through his textbook to undermine the authority of scripture. I said that to say a lot of people use Bart as a source to undercut the reliability of the Bible. Bart is also a white man. So I just want to I just want to share that as well to provide some balance because I know some people in our audience 
don't want to hear things if they aren't written by black people. However, on both sides of the argument, most people black that are going to be sourcing in a more progressive space are going to be sourcing white people for yes. their foundation yes, for biblical and textual criticism, just because we don't have enough black people that have wrote in that area. So they have to go to white uh, scholars for that framework. Now they'll build upon that, but the framework I think about James Cone is pulling from more progressive uh, leaning scholars on the old and, and New Testament, but those scholars are white. And so on the opposite end, Dr. Redmond, who's going to fall more in line with more of a theological conservative position is going to be pulling also from white sources, not because, you know, we're trying to be whitewashed, but because there really no other people who've written on it. Uh, there have just been, not been enough black people who've written on it to pull from. And so I just want I, to give that balance to help you see when you're constructing an argument that you have to pull from a white source on the left or the right. Lisa, I could not have said it better. I totally agree uh, with you because the issue is not who wrote this in terms of ethnicity. We're asking the question, do we have valid argu arguments? And those who build their the other arguments against this are going to build from similar so source sources here. So I would like to put the challenge to the listeners, hey, you heard Lisa say that we still need a lot more scholarship written by African Amer Americans and people of African descent to write and to examine the artifacts, the history, the documents of the ancient Near East and become scholars in this area and produce writing um, so that the little PK, like like Lisa, can uh, have as her partner scholars who affirm the very thing that she's always believed going to church and being in in Sunday school. So um, we need you to come on and 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 get to to studying and go all the way and get all the scholarship and and sit next to us so that next generation can say I'm referring to so and so and when they're doing it they're pointing to someone who has a darker hue. Yes, I appreciate that, that, uh, that uh, exaltation and encouragement and challenge to mm -hmm. people, because what happens is we start, we go into a space, um, academic spaces, and then we, we start only writing about our issues. But a part of bringing equity to a situation is being a scholar in each individual field and people being able to point to you as an authority in that. So if you do New Testament, it doesn't have to be about race. If you do Old Testament, it doesn't have to be about race. Not that that's an impo not important, but when we wanna bring equity to a space and have references to point to, we need black people in Old Testament studying ancient Near East and, and those things so people can have something to point to, um, to, to change the discourse. Does that make sense? It does, Lisa. And on your point there, to make clear to um, our, your, your listeners here, we really need you in four disciplines to come join many. We need Old Testament, New Testament, historical theology and systematic the theology. The black church leads the way when it comes to scholarship on preaching and pastoral stuff because church is our thing. That's 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 us, and we we are going to have scholarship in preaching and pastoral uh, studies and related because that's what we've always been accepted and received. And no one could say you don't know what you're talking about when it comes to preaching and church because that's us. But we need the ability for people to say you know what there are people in the African American community who took who did a doctoral program in ancient Near Eastern or Oriental literature that took them 10 years to do at the University of Pennsylvania or Catholic University or Harvard University or University of Chicago, because that's what those Old Testament scholars do. They sacrifice 10 years of their lives sometimes to, 
to to do that on full fellowships, of course, but they do that. We need some of y'all to to accept a challenge to do that. It's a lonely it's a lonely trek, but we need you to do that. We need you to take the four to five years to do New Testament and come on beside me and 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 do that uh, sort of thing. So again, future generations will point to people um, who have kinky hair and say they did that scholarship and it's just as good as anyone else's. Yes, I love that. Well, before we close, we want to talk about the commentary that you that you uh, wrote on Judges and Ruth, right? Commentary on Judges and Ruth. Yes. yes. And let tell, me tell again. Tell our audience a little bit about that. So, first thing, commentaries are of three types, intermediate, uh, beginners, and advanced. This is somewhere between a beginner and an intermediate commentary. It's made so that if you're in college, you would enjoy this. If you're in Sunday school, you would enjoy this. This is not for all the scholarly questions that we were trying to discuss earlier in the Pentateuch. This commentary on Judges and Ruth, Christ-centered exposition of Judges and Ruth, is intended to help you see how the Old Testament scriptures speak to your contemporary life and how God is using that to form Christ in you. So what I'm saying is, in this commentary, in this commentary series, Judges and Ruth are relevant to every area of your life, and the issues they speak to are things we talk talk to. So I'm going to give one here to tease everybody. When you get to Judges 21, we've come off a war between the tribes of Israel and Benjamin. And Benjamin is almost decimated. But certainly what has happened in the war is that there are not enough, enough women left in the tribe of Benjamin for Benjamin to continue. So we need to get wives from there from somewhere. But if you're in Israel, you're not supposed to marry outside of Israel. But here's what the rest of the tribe say. This is the opening statement in Judges 21. Repeat it two more times. No one in Israel shall give their daughter to marry anyone in Benjamin. Now, we read that and we read the story of how they wrestle with this and, and are trying to make sure Benjamin doesn't die off, but they need solutions to find them. Then why? But they come back and say, but nobody in Israel will marry anyone from, from Benjamin. That cannot be the the solution and they go on and say this again and what this and i explain how to get to this in the commentary what this is really getting at is this we one large group ethnicity are never going to let our daughters marry them you know that sounds like something out of african-american life there's no way we majority culture want our daughters to marry them the trophy wife from slavery and the way people even now feel about their daughters. I always ask a young brother when he starts dating someone that is of the majority culture, I say, have you met the parents? Have you met the grandparents? Do they approve? Because normally they don't like you touching their daughter. Do you know scripture addressed that issue back in the 14th century BC? And if people had understood that that's what was getting at, we could have cut through that and said, dear slave master, you're absolutely wrong. Your white supremacist, you're absolutely wrong. What I'm saying is every chapter in Judges, every chapter in Ruth is just a practical, but we have to understand how to read it. That's what we're doing in this commentary. Yes, that's and that's available on Amazon. It's available on Amazon, Barnes Nobles, Target, uh, Walmart, Broadman, Holman is the publisher. Awesome. Awesome. Well, thank you for that. One last question I want to ask you, because this is a one that the church struggles with. How do you interpret the Old Testament in light of the new? So we first have to interpret the Old Testament in light of itself before we interpret it in light of the new, meaning for 400 years before there was ever a New Testament document, the Israelites the ancient Israelites were supposed to read the Old Testament and understand that this has meaning for uh, me. So if you're reading Psalm 23, you would understand from Psalm 23 that the Lord's shepherd-like ministry to David keeps him from having want in this life 
all the way through the next because David says, uh, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever here. So he's taking care of his needs where he has a table in the wilderness, but he's also going to take care of him forever. They understand that reading the Old Testament. But when we get to New Testament and Jesus says, I am the good shepherd, we go back to Psalm 23 and we say, oh my goodness, now I see that we're talking about Jesus and all the things he says about the new, about the good shepherd in the New Testament. We, we, we have to read the Old Testament on its own merit and understand it, every passage, like what I just said there. But then when the New Testament completes the ideas that God has been speaking in uh, the Old Testament, we can say, now we more fully understand what God was trying to get at. Or as our African church father, Augustine, said in the Old Testament, the New Testament is concealed. In the New Testament, the Old Testament is revealed. All the, the the New Testament has the the Old Testament has the New Testament hidden away like a little kernel here. And when you get to the New Testament, it explodes out and becomes this great big big flower. And you say, "Oh my goodness, that's what was going on back there." That's how we read one in light of the other. Yeah, that's super helpful. How can people get in contact with you on social media? So on IG, I'm Eric C. Redmond, uh, same on Facebook, same on TikTok, uh, same on Be Real. Uh, there, I don't have a, a pin, and my my kids told me that one of those other social medias, if I did it, it would seem creepy, and so don't uh, do that. We don't want old people on that social media site. I have a blog, man from Issachar, ericredmondwordpress.com, and people can always email me if they don't want to do social media, eric.redmond at moody.edu. Well, thank you, Dr. Redmond. This has been a great conversation that I'm sure our listeners will enjoy. Um, remember, you can find all of our past episodes at Jew3project.org. Our social handles, we're at Jew3project on all the platforms. Uh, remember, we have our Courageous Conversations curriculum where we have a section on should we trust the Bible in here. And we have our unspoken curriculum that goes along with um, the unspoken documentary. You could get this curriculum at unspokenmovie.com. You could get the Courageous Conversations curriculum at g3project.org. Um, yeah. And remember here at the G3 Project, we cannot do what we do without the generosity of people like you. We have a lot of things we want to accomplish 2023, another documentary, uh, some, uh, some more events and things of that nature, but those, uh, cost money and we cannot do it without the generosity of our viewers and supporters. Uh, so if you would go to g3project.org, hit the donate tab. Uh, if you go to the website, you have the option when you hit donate to have the option to donate by mail. So you'll have the address and then you'll have the option to donate online. You can e either be a monthly supporter or a one-time giver. Either one you choose, we greatly appreciate it. We cannot do what we do without you. As I say, every gift helps equip. Um, and remember here, the G3 Project, we're helping you to know what you believe and why you believe it. Until next time, grace and peace and God bless. What's up, everybody? This is Lisa Fields, founder and president of the Jew3 Project, and this is six highlights from the Jew3 Project for 2022. Number six, the unspoken documentary in partnership with DLC Media. Number five, the Juneteenth documentary in partnership with Our Daily Bread. Number four, our Right Now Media series through Eyes of Color. Number three, our Courageous Conversations curriculum. Number two, our Courageous Conversations Conference 2022. And number one, Problematic Passages featuring Dr. Esau McCauley and Dr. Joe Vitale. We've had an incredible year. I mean, God has done some amazing things that have caused growth and we have reached millions across the globe with your help. Help us continue the mission and the vision of the Jew3 Project at Jew3project.org. We need your help to help people reimagine faith through apologetics. Every gift helps equip and help us to expand in 2023. Grace and peace. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of the Jew3 Project podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode. You can tune into all our past episodes at www.jew3project.org. 
www.thebrandedmyself.com. You can subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play. Remember not only to subscribe, but also rate us. That helps us to gauge how we're doing and how you're enjoying the show. And it gives other listeners some ideas about the show as well. So thank you so much for tuning in. Also, remember, we have our Bible engagement app in partnership with Back to the Bible to help you get better engaged in the Bible every single day. You take a survey, it assesses your strengths and weaknesses and sends you Bible verses based on those. So it's a great app. You can download the app by searching in your app store or Google Play, searching G3 Project, and it'll be right there for you. So thank you again. Remember, if you would like to become a monthly partner or a one-time giver, you can do so on our website or by mail. Just go to Jew3Project.com, hit that donate tab, and you'll see the option to mail in a gift or give online. We appreciate you, and I'm so, so thankful for you. God bless, and remember, here at the Jew3 Project, we're helping you to know what you believe and why you believe it.